welcome everybody to a new episode of the Art Business Podcast. My guest today is Dr. Federica Carlotto. And I know Federica, she's a colleague of mine at Sotheby's Institute of Art in London, uh, where she is now program director of an exciting new master's program in luxury business. And prior to that, uh, Federica was, was, was teaching a semester course in the same subject, which proved so popular with the students that we decided in the end, or the Institute decided to turn it into a master's degree, which is now uh, I think in its second iteration, Federica. Anyway, welcome, Federica. <laughs> Thank you, David. Thank you for having me here. Yes, it's the second second iteration. Yes. Yeah, second edition of the, the, this year for the, for for the new MA in uh, luxury business. Um, I I do a, a a lecture at the start of the program, for example, um, on the development of ideas on luxury in the ancient. Greek and Roman world <laughs> and, the, and the students are, are great and they, they're receptive to the historical aspects and so on. We're, we'll be talking more about uh, the content and mission of that program late, late, later in the podcast. But as usual, Federica, I'm going to start uh, by, by asking you what your favourite city is and, and why. Um, it might be very obvious. I think I have to reply with Verona, my hometown. City. Verona? No, it's not obvious. Most people say <laughs> London for some reason, so it's great to have Verona. Uh, but I think it's more, more because of the relationship that has been evolving in years. Uh, you know, you when you grow up in a, in a town, in a city, you take it for granted somehow. And then my life took me abroad, took me five years in Japan for my MA and PhD, uh, and then now I've been living in London for 10 years. And so over the years, every time I go back, the relationship somehow changes. And um, I remember when I was in Japan, um, somebody asked me, what do you miss most of Italy? And I said, the stones of Verona, because of course in Japan, the traditional architecture is wooden architecture or concrete skyscrapers. Um, and so after five years, I, you know, I really miss that kind of marble, the uh, pink marble and Absolutely. the stones of the Roman part of the city. Um, and most recently, um, with the lockdown, when we were allowed, I was back to Italy for a few months and um, we were allowed just to move. Um, we didn't have a lot of movement, let's say, within the region. And so the only highlight of the week was to uh, go to the city center. And again, it's incredible how much you can discover and rediscover um, of a city that you have been living there for most part of your life. Absolutely. And I guess that's because your own experiences change and you you you, you visit with, with new eyes. Um, uh, Federica, um, what... I love Verona. I, I I think the first time I went to Verona, I was actually leading, this was long before I was at the Institute, I was leading cultural tours for a, for a British company. And uh, they these included uh, the opera. Uh, and mm -hmm. so there was a cultural tour where we, it was amazing, we stayed in Verona like for five days and um, included were, were tickets to the the famous opera in the ancient Roman amphitheatre, which of course suits my interests, uh, in Verona, and I, I suspect some of the listeners might have, 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 have experienced that. But um, uh, would you, would you, maybe you could just say a little bit about what else there is in Verona to, to for, for people to visit, um, other than the opera at the 
wonderful amphitheater? I guess um, something that I came to appreciate, and actually when I have guests myself, I do little tours as well, right? When you have <laughs> guests, um, I think the churches, the historical churches, uh, there is a tour that you can do. I think it's five or six churches and each church has a specific history, a specific architecture. Um, and it's incredible. Um, from the Duomo, then you have a few. Um, there is exactly a tour. And uh, um, I think even if you're not interested in the religious dimension of that, it's just to see the amount of work, craftsmanship, um, that went into, into those buildings that is just astonishing and the differences and how history speaks through the different layers as well uh, of, uh, of these buildings. So I think it's, um, this is something that maybe, as I said, you know, it's interesting that you stay, you were lucky to stay five days because usually um, the, the tours go you know um maybe you go to venice and then before going to milan or vice versa you stop quickly <laughs> in verona and then you maybe do half a day which i think it's a shame because uh besides the amphitheater there is a whole uh, you know even castel vecchio which is the the castle that we have in the city center um and the roman architecture uh the 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 gates of the cities as well um it's it's just speaks history uh, quite a big deal um and so yes i would recommend to stop at least more than half a day <laughs> yeah i remember we stopped once with our ma art business students when we were traveling between venice and torino we we, we go mm -hmm. to artisma in the contemporary art fair in torino mm -hmm. haven't done that since lockdown but we're planning to do that back go back to that from next year it's in early november uh, but we also go to Venice and we used to take the coach. We now get the train. We used, when we took the coach, there was one occasion when we stopped at Verona for a, mm -hmm. for a break on the way for lunch mm -hmm. and so on. Um, and um, even in a couple of hours, uh, we, we we divided the students into smaller groups and did a little tour mm -hmm. each with them before lunch. And yeah, I went, look, I think there's a Roman bridge, isn't there? There is an ancient Roman bridge. Yes. Yeah, I took yes. the students to that and it's very beautiful down by the river there. And then the church I the church art I particularly remember is it San Zeno yes which has yes. a Bellini a Giovanni Bellini altarpiece uh, Mantegna I think Mantegna, Mantegna that's it it's Mantegna yeah. a long time ago it's a Mantegna that's right so there's fantastic sort of um, painting in those churches as well I see and remember. also in that church uh, there is a wooden statue of the Bishop of Verona San Zeno that's right. and it's quite an interesting statue because the Bishop and it's a <clears> saint of course He's smiling. Yes. And so <laughs> it's quite peculiar considering the times he's smiling. And so there is a whole um, there is a whole legend there. Uh, there is a way of saying that uh, people from Verona are crazy. And this refers to because maybe they love drinking. And then <laughs> somebody else says because of the statue. Um, so this is also quite, uh, quite interesting. And, and of course, there's another famous uh, statue in in Verona of Juliet from Rome, from Chelsea's <laughs> Romeo and yes. Juliet, which is a. I seem to remember that's a great tourist pull, particularly for younger tourists and Italians. Do you want to just say a little bit about the House of Romeo? I think it is. Uh, I Juliet is it? <laughs> yes. No. I. To be honest, I have to be honest, and I hope I don't spoil. Yes. <laughs> um. It's just an insider talk, let's say, but um, 
well, of course, it's a touristic attraction, right? So um, it's not as historically accurate. Yeah. I think that what makes it special, I think, is the um, is the feelings of people. Let's say yeah. it like that. It's yeah. not of historical interest, but what you know, what is uh, important is that when people want to celebrate love, of course, or you want to gain love because you know that state you. If you touch, I don't remember which press, but if you touch one of the press up to it, then you will get lucky. So there is still hope. <laughs> so there's almost like a kind of like in Roman Catholic churches, particularly in Italy, you get similar things with religious statues, particularly of the Madonna, where people feel that they're going to be healed by her and then leave these little silver objects to say thank you for healing me it's fantastically moving and I it's quite interesting it's almost like a, a secular pagan version of that isn't it touching Juliet's breasts taking a selfie against it hoping for a loved yes. one <laughs> or being exactly. loved one. and I seem to remember yeah. there's all sorts of graffiti on the brick walls of the courtyard there where, 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 where lovers a bit like the kind of padlocks that people put on the um the Pont Neuf in Paris <laughs> Yes, I agree with that. I think it's, it's a, the right way of seeing it. Yeah. But the historical background is, yeah, dubious. So, <laughs> and, and, <laughs> and talking about the churches, do you, would one of those churches be, if I had to say, what's your favorite building in the world? Would it be one of those oh, churches or would it be somewhere else? I have to say, uh, Palazzo Te, Te mm. Palace in Mantova. Mantua. Yes, the Giulio Romano Mannerist Palace. Fantastic. It's, you know, I don't know what is that in the building, in the palace. Yeah. I've been a few times uh, just because, and this tells me that there is the proportions, the cleanness. Um, you just see architecture 100%. You're not distracted. There are frescoes, of course, some magnificent frescoes. But I think it's the proportion, the um, the space and, you know, when we talk about, um, you know, Renaissance and the idea of human beings being at the center in a way of the universe and now and how we can in inhabit that universe, I think that the architecture there really express, it speaks to me in that way. You feel, you feel right, you feel right in that space. And then while you progress in the rooms, you know, uh, it's just, a journey into proportions, into, I would say, well-being. I always thought, you know, if I ever had a big house, that would be the, <laughs> that would yeah. be the model. <laughs> so for the listeners, that's the Palazzo Te, T-E, which is on the outskirts. So I think it was almost a villa at the time, almost like a countryside mm -hmm. villa at the time, on the outskirts of the wonderful uh, Gonzaga city of Mantua. Uh, yes. So I think typically you would visit the, the, Palazzo Ducale, the Ducal Palace in, mm -hmm. in, in, mm -hmm. in within the city. And then you can you can travel out. It's walkable, I seem to remember, about a 45-minute walk out to this wonderful Palazzo Te. Uh, the architect Giulio Romano, it's a great mannerist masterpiece. So it's still using classical architecture, mm -hmm. but it's doing very interesting things with it at the same time. So as as you say, Federico, it has a sense of calm and order, but it also have, has a bit more than that because he's doing some strange anti-classical things at the same time. As yeah. as with the frescoes on the interior, I remember the grotto there. I think yes. there is, yeah. Mm. And also, I don't know, David, because of course you are interested in in in, in the Roman architecture as well, right? Um, does it make you feel like you are in a sort of Roman villa? Definitely, mm. and that was the idea, I guess, to get give a kind of frescoed effect, like 
from the discovered Nero's Golden Palace in Rome that was found in the early, in the late 15th century, and they see these frescoes, and I think that leads to artists frescoing their buildings. And we talked about the Palazzo Tebbi and a bit more of a villa in the countryside setting. So do you have a favourite countryside location, Federica, that you particularly love to go to to get away from the city sometimes? Um, can I go back to Japan at this yes, point? <laughs> can we travel a little bit? Yeah. Um, of course, I don't have many chances to go to Japan whenever I want to escape London. Uh, but definitely um, the countryside in Japan during the autumn oh, now wow. we are in autumn yeah. just to see the leaves changing colors i think nikko is just an amazing place it's a uh, uh, it's stuck in, in in the mountains and it's the site where the first shogun um so the head of the military government in japan so we are 17th century uh he established his shrine there and so it's just a beautiful, beautiful environment. Again, if we talk about the spirit of a place, <laughs> um, of course, you have this historical uh, monument, but more than that, I think is the nature speaking there. Um, and then in autumn dance. The other thing in Japan, I've never been to Japan. I'd love to go, but the, uh, um, we've had Japanese students in the in the past, and they've always said, "Oh, look at the photos! You must come, David, and visit us." Um, and and the, the the famous ones as well are, of course, the cherry blossom in the spring with Mount Fuji, with still snow mm -hmm. covered in the background, and we see that in like Hokusai. Mm -hmm. paintings and and so on and 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 um what about music do you do do you listen to music or aren't you really into music or, or do you have any kind of favorite music um you know for me music is always in the background so <laughs> it depends on the moment okay. uh, i have to say uh so if i want to focus classic music i got into the goldberg variation but just because a wow. friend recommended to me yes um otherwise you know, I think that uh, a, re a genre that speaks to me is actually new jazz, so wow. kind of yes. electronic jazz. So yes. um, Pair of Stellar is one. Um, and, I, you know, they come, they used to come to London quite often. I would I would say at least once a year. So I would go and listen and listen to their music. Uh, mm -hmm. So it's an Austrian, um, it's an Austrian uh, musician, but then he, of course, he works in, a, in ensemble with uh, with others. So kind of more um, experimental jazz rather than trad jazz, as it were. Yeah, yeah. But then there is a there is an element of nostalgia of retro, but then with uh, you know um, with also some kind of contamination from other genres. So <laughs> contamination, that's... I love it. <laughs> and the Goldberg variations, of course, by Johann Sebastian Bach, one of his great masterpieces. I think for the harpsichord originally. Or, I wouldn't say. <laughs> I mean, I, I think I think it was a keyboard, and then it became for piano, and uh, and then sometimes they orchestrate it. I don't, I can't remember, but yeah, there you go. And um, and then and then art coming now more into your interest in what you're doing at the institute now with luxury. Can you remember? Do you have any early memories of art from your childhood, or you know, can you remember when you first started getting interested in things that weren't ne necessary to our lives, but things that were maybe unnecessary such as art some would argue and that might lead us on in a moment to think about defining luxury <laughs> but just do you, do you have any favorite artists i guess is the question favorite artist or or can you have any have you any early memories of art growing up well, in corona <laughs> i 
I have to say, if I go back to my memories, that was through my family. So um, my parents um, used to have a camping car, a caravan car. I don't know how you call it. It's a camping mm -hmm. car. Yeah. And uh, since I was one year old, basically, we would travel. Uh, mm. We would travel a lot. And uh, uh, it was really kind of hardcore traveling because at the time, my parents would buy um, those uh, guides. We didn't have mobile phones back then. So it was guides. And the guides for, for the Italian uh, listeners is the guides of the Turing Club. Yeah. And those guys are, maybe you know it as well. Yeah, no, I used to get them when I was doing these cultural tours. They're fantastic. These kind of green covered or blue yes. covered things, like little thin books to the yes. different regions of Italy. And they're, they're a bit yes. like our blue guides or Baedekers. Okay. So I remember, you know, if you compare them to the Lonely Planet guys, yeah. I mean, there is no comparison. And so yeah. I remember with my parents reading loud, especially they were very detailed, right? In the description of the artistic monuments. And so yes. when I was a kid, I had to listen to this yeah. very, you know, my <laughs> parents reading this very long description of the church, every single column, every single, you know, uh, works of, work of art. So that was the kind of approach I got. And then um, I have to say that came naturally um, because in, by living in Verona, then we would get, um, at the time, the local bank uh, was actually giving all the students in Verona uh, a sort of uh, diary book uh, with all the monuments and an explanation of the monuments. So it was pretty much ingrained in our yes. way of living. Um, and so that, that kept on. Uh, I remember at a certain point when I was in high school, Impressionists becoming very, very hot, you know, <laughs> yes. as a, as a, um, as an attraction to museums. I remember one exhibition of uh, of Monet um, in in Milan, and I remember I cut school. I don't know how you say it, but I cut school in order to go to Milan. <laughs> no, I told my parents I'm not going to go to school, but I'm yeah. going to Milan to see Monet. Yes. Um, we so, have lots we have lots of slang words for that such as bunked off skived off there's lots of words that school kids use for for, for not attending classes okay, <laughs> to an then, i think we forgive you if you're going to a money exhibition <laughs> i was forgiven by my parents so that was okay <laughs> <laughs> well, that's an interesting first experience um and 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 obviously growing up in i i i think you're the first italian uh, guest on on the podcast and I kind of it's whenever I speak to my Italian students you know they grow up with art and you know and some that can sometimes be be, be almost too much of a, a a burden you know they always having to know about ancient Greek and Roman and um, Renaissance art a lot of the students then come across to London and say thank god for that I can be in the contemporary art world but you know gen <laughs> generally I find that they have a real love for the Italian artistic tradition and that it's a, a specifically Italian thing well, you know, even you mentioned before the amphitheater, um, mm. when I was back last time, um, I I went to, you know, we have also a Roman theater, yes, uh, which is very close to the river. With, yeah. I and I went, I went to see a modern rendition of the Iliad. Wow. Uh, you know, and. I was impressed. I was looking at the other the other people in the audience. I was impressed by how much still 
everybody really. You could see there was some, you know, professor rather than intellectual, but then you would see, uh, you know, people like us attending, you know, and young people. Mm-hmm. So you you really feel that it's something that we all we all share, and I, I, I'm sure you uh, you appreciate that. Um, you know, the the classics actually speak so much of our world today. So. I was thinking, watching this, uh, um, uh, the the Iliad, uh, how much this speaks to us still yeah. nowadays in the times we live. So uh, I understand it might be overwhelming at a certain point. So you need to get away from it. But every time I go back to it, I find sense in a way or uh, more sense uh, into the appreciation of art, for instance, and um, and the past. It's a nice way to reflect about uh, about the world. So, you know, I don't have a favorite artist, but I do like to, and I do enjoy to understand, and I ask myself, what do they want to say? How do they see the world? Um, that, that's the meaning for me. I yeah. think that's a very good piece of advice for our students. Just give, you know, we're we're so busy with our Insta quick fits, like images all the time, uh, that, that, that I think it's good sometimes to, to learn to go into a gallery and just pick maybe one room or one painting or two and sit and just really, really look at it and get absorbed by it. Because after all, the the artist has put all that time in. So why shouldn't we put time back into it? And, you know, talking about music, how long does it take to listen to the Goldberg Variations in its entirety? Probably over an hour. And yet we won't sit in front of a Picasso and look for an hour usually. So, you know, it's it's a skill that we've kind of lost, I think because of the swift moving of images today so you know I felt the same when I went to Castelvecchio which is the uh, medieval castle in Verona they have an amazing Mm -hmm. collection of paintings uh, which were actually stolen and then somehow they got back to the city Um, and when I was when I was back to 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 see those paintings I realized how much ignorant we are as contemporary human beings with all this symbology. Um, of course, paintings like the, the subject were religious subjects, but how much the, these paintings would like to speak <laughs> and how ignorant we are in not being able to detect what they really want to say and all the symbology and the iconography. Um, and I was, uh, you know, um, and also how much we should provide visitors with the means, with tools, even even kind of fancy tools or interesting tools using also Instagram to educate people to read those and to enable this communication between, you know, between human beings and, and the piece, the work of art. Um, Absolutely. And I, I remember taking students like when we visit Torino, as you know, it's got a um, it's got an amazing art collection that because the Savoy family was there in the Renaissance and very wealthy art collectors like all Italian dynasties and um, <clears throat> Franco-Italian obviously in the case of Savoy's but you know they, they've got this magnificent art collection but when I've taken students around there I have to spend a lot of time just reminding them of the biblical story or the Greek mythological story you mentioned the theatrical performance of the Il- Homer's Iliad you know the, one of the first pieces of western literature from the 8th century BCE so you know increasingly a hundred years ago or maybe a bit longer now probably before World War One um, most educated people knew their Greek and Latin and their <laughs> and their bit and their Bible you know they went to church um, and of course increasingly 
um, that has just disappeared from our educational system and from our cultural systems. Mm -hmm. And it's a problem, of course, that in, in our MA and art business, it, it's an issue for people wanting to go into the what we call the old masters sector, mm -hmm. because they that there is an issue there in a um, trying to get younger people interested in old masters because mm -hmm. of those biblical and mythological narratives mm -hmm. that they just don't often don't understand. And B, other cultures, you know, trying to get, say, Chinese buyers interested in Western old masters because mm -hmm. they don't understand a lot of the time mm -hmm. that those stories as well. So it is a kind of issue, but we treat it positively. And the story that the reason those stories survived in the first place, because they're good stories. <laughs> so usually the storytelling becomes part of the process of enjoying the work, but also selling it. You know, if you if a dealer tells you the story behind the work, you're immediately grabbing the interest of the potential buyer. Anyway, Federica, I guess we better come to the kind of core of 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 of, of this discussion. Um, but it's been really, really interesting having that initial talk. Um, so where did your interest in this concept of luxury come from? How did that begin out of what you've just told us about your interest in music and art and so on? Um, you know, I was I was thinking about it and <laughs> um, I think it comes, well, my interest in luxury actually started from an interesting passion. And that came from my mother because my mother used to make my clothes and her clothes. Wow. So in a way... With a I sewing mean, it, machine. Yes. <laughs> it was a hobby for her. Yes. Uh, also, we didn't have much money, you know, to renovate our wardrobe, mm. renew our wardrobe every season. And so what I... Somehow I was immersed in this world where I would get really original clothes all the time, very different from everybody else. At times I remember dearly uh, she was dressing and my mother would dress myself and herself um, as a mini me, you know, the mini me when you dress coordinated. <laughs> yes. So the same color and slightly different cut, but still quite similar. And so I, I was always immersed in this idea where you would have colors, different colors and different kind of design on your body. Um, and so I was always, I always had this eye for uh, dresses and how people appear and how they express themselves through what they wear. Um, and then um, with luxury, the term luxury, and that is a story that my mom usually tells me. So it's a reported story. Um, my mom told me that we, we went to visit Portugal once and we had to take a cab and, and I was, I don't, I don't even remember myself. So maybe I was four or five and I, and I would, I think I told my mom something like, well, next time, can we have a more luxurious cab? And my mom was like, I don't know where that came from. Um, and so somehow the, the attention to things that are uh, somehow on the upper tire, the attention towards detail, uh, this kind of aesthetics somehow, I think these are, these are the two elements I can somehow put together to, to justify that. And then, um, you know, when I when I had to choose, um, I won a scholarship to go to Japan. Um, and when I had to choose uh, my area, uh, at that point, I said, you know, I'm going to go for fashion sociology because that, that's pretty much my interest. Um, and, you know, while dealing with topics and writing my dissertations, uh, I would I would naturally pick uh, luxury brands as an example within fashion. 
Um, and then once I finished there, I started the academic career. At a certain point, I, I really wanted to go into the business side of things. And so I took a sabbatical. I enrolled in an in a MBA. Um, and the specialization at the beginning for this MBA was a fashion business or something. So I said, okay, I'm going to go for that. And in the moment of enrolling, they told me, actually, instead of maybe fashion business, it's going to be a specialization in luxury brand management. I'm like, yeah, fine. Um, and this is did how you say, I did got... You say, sorry, did you say luxury brand management? Yes, yeah. yes. That was the specialization. And so from fashion, I transitioned into luxury, really. Yeah. How interesting. So it begins really with your with with coming out of necessity, really. That's what's quite interesting, that out of necessity, which is often seen as the opposite of luxury, the things that we really <laughs> need to exist in, 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 in the world. Um, and you needed clothes and your mum made them because of, of, of relative poverty. Um, mm -hmm. But though, in a sense, those clothes paradoxically, I bet your friends sometimes kind of like envied you some of these things because you couldn't buy them in the shops. Is that? possible yes. or were they really functional looking and you know I suspect that they were actually really really nice and very individual which of course in itself then paradoxically becomes a luxury object because it's unique like a work of art yes exactly and I can tell you that if I go back to my childhood I can say I had a very luxurious life back then not only because of the dresses but also because um, I was mentioning before that my parents had a camping car yes uh, these were the late 70s early 80s yes. which meant that you wouldn't have the amount of caravans now traveling around yes as a matter of fact that was a, a sort of artisanal camping car it was actually a a truck transporting salt another luxury item in the past and yes. my dad readjusted as a camping car and that was a very cheap way of traveling in a moment where hotels were expensive and everybody would go on holidays in hotels what happened is that we will we would be on the road and so the adventures and the exclusive actually experiences that we got is something that you wouldn't be able to replicate today we went to petra um uh, petra and nowadays the, in lebanon in, uh, petra isn't it's Jordan, is it isn't it? Jor Jordan. Uh, is it Syria. Jordan or Syria? Oh. Is, yeah, sorry. Yeah. Apologies, but it's, it's <laughs> the ancient city of Petra. Yes. And, you know, nowadays you have to book, you have guided tours. Yeah. It's quite crowded. Camels sometimes. <laughs> exactly. But the magic of oh, wow. going there on just own. on your own yeah. and having the privilege to meet with the guide, you know, yeah. telling you about his life. Um, we were really adventurous. And if I go back, you know, now there is a lot, there is a lot of status in say, I'm traveling here and there. Yes. And for me, the luxury is that I visited those countries when it was very exclusive to do so. And I have my memories and these are really, really luxury for me in a way. It's a great story. It's a great story, Federica, because out of necessity, you actually ended up doing very special, unique things that maybe your maybe wealthier friends weren't doing. I, the same thing happened to me. Um, my friends were all traveling on plane, on jets to to the Caribbean, uh, down to the Spanish islands, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and 
because my father worked for what was then the nationalized British Railways, we would get the whole family would get free tickets anywhere in Europe. <laughs> and and so we when we went to Italy and Spain, we we went by train. And I remember thinking it was so romantic. You know, I'd wake up in the middle of the night, I'd look out the window and I'd smell the local donuts being made and they'd sell them through they'd sell them through the window. I'd give them money. Mm-hmm. And um and, and then in the morning my father would take us all down to the buffet car, which used to be like more like an Orient spread, like a luxury buffet mm-hmm. car, very different to the ones today. And we'd sit there with the tablecloth, the eating croissants and coffee, watching the Alps go by as we came across mm-hmm. into Italy. So and, and I was kind of envious of that my my friends used to take the Mickey. <laughs> you know oh you can't afford to go by plane and 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 now when i think of course now rail travel is the luxury <laughs> and of flying course. is like easy jet and the necessity so again it's quite interesting that paradox in 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 doing things that aren't luxury but that are <laughs> in a sense yes i agree with you and i guess that uh, this this is pretty much the gateway to understand luxury as well it's a very dynamic concept and you know, I, I so understand what you say because my dad used to work for the National Italian Railways as well. <laughs> Before they were all <laughs> so, divided up and privatized, yeah. <laughs> and so um in a way, I understand the kind of slow traveling and right. the idea of experience that nowadays we talk a lot about experiential economy and people looking for experience, but I always say you also have the right mindset to appreciate that. Yes. And to somehow savor those experiences and making it part of who you are, uh, because this is the luxury nowadays, right? It's it's about being able to appreciate things as well, I would say, mm-hmm. in a world that has become very noisy. Uh, think about the travel, just because we're talking about traveling. Think about, you know, how many people travel and tra- traveling has become, you know, even by plane, as you said, you know, it has become actually quite distracting somehow, right? Yeah, and so, of course, unsustainable in terms of the planet. We're about to have the new, the, the the COP, the COP conference. Um, you can probably hear I'm I'm under a flight path into Heathrow, um, <laughs> and and so every every ninety seconds a plane is coming over my head. Hopefully, yeah. it's not disturbing the recording too much. Um, so. Uh, you know, we all probably. No, I cannot I, hear it, so it's fine. <laughs> oh, that's good. With, within within um, uh, the, the the microphone I'm using is omnidirect. I can make it omnidirectional, so it's only hearing me. Um, yeah, and we, we're increasingly when we do our study trips in the institute, we we if possible, we're now taking the train rather mm-hmm. than the coach or an aeroplane. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so so we're trying to do our bit for sustainability. Obviously, when we go to Venice, we it's impossible. We have to take the plane. <laughs> of but course. As much as possible, we're kind of trying to be a bit more sustainable. But um, so coming coming on to the the program at the Institute, um, uh, the the presumably um, how how did you how did that happen? Did was the Institute reaching out and looking for someone who could teach a luxury semester course or did you suggest it or how did that happen in in the first place i think the institute had an idea Mm. they had the idea um i think it was coming from the fact that big auction houses started opening departments specializing in luxury the trade of luxury goods and so luxury somehow entered uh, in the radar um and uh, um and this is how it started so for me i was coming from another institution i was um i was 
uh, teaching luxury brand management there. Yes. So for me, it was a very interesting environment. It was a new environment because I was I was teaching a business and management department, and here I come to a very humanistic um, environment, um, and where I had actually to consider also the relationship between art and luxury naturally. Um, so it was very interesting to me as a discovery of that world that I I had been in touch as as we said before, um, you know, very in a very amateur way, um, and so trying to look at luxury also from the artistic perspective, also within a different um, framework, let's say, and then um, of course I was coming with all my uh, thinking about luxury being its own discipline. And somehow it came mutually between, of course, the institution, the institute and myself. You know, I kept saying, you know, look, you know, luxury is its own discipline um, and it has its own academic uh, validity. Um, and, and this is how actually we started talking to develop a master program that was specialized in luxury industry, in the luxury industry uh, with, of course, um, an edge or uh, with uh, um, a side um, kind of unit, let's say, uh, dealing with the relationship between art and luxury. Yeah, and as you say, that the 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 current owner or main owner of um, Sotheby's um, Drahi, uh, you know, I know when he came in that he 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 said that my vision is to is to turn Sotheby's, for example, from being a fine art auctioneer into into a luxury business where we're not where fine art becomes one of several luxuries that like including like usually secondhand uh, Gucci handbags etc you know all of those things that they'd already been selling but he wanted to, as, as far as I know he wanted to kind of highlight those departments I'm not certain I think at first everyone thought that this was going to really take over but I'm not it doesn't look that different to me <laughs> over the last couple of years Sotheby's you know it's still still looks not dissimilar to what it used to look like. But as you say, it's very interesting, this concept of is is fine art a, a luxury good? Or or you said earlier that, you know, luxury is its own academic discipline and it can stand alone without necessarily having having to have art uh, within mm -hmm. its within its frame. But maybe, maybe you could say something about how when you're creating the master's degree and it's validated by the University of Manchester, so it has to be kind of academically tight. Um, you know, what are the core modules and what was your academic thinking behind those mm -hmm. those units, as we call them at the Institute? <laughs> um, I think I, first of all, as I said, I took into account the environment I was. And so the humanistic aspect that really resonated with, with myself, but also uh, with what I personally believe also academically. And that is the fact that when we talk about business, we usually tend to think about, um, of course, revenue, about markets. And we use these words that somehow, um, you know, they don't take into account that at the end of the day, businesses are made by people for people. And so the value, what we call value in business terms, is not something that is determined by the price. You could say, yes, demand and offer, but what is demand? You know, with luxury, demand is desire. Mm -hmm. And desire, uh, you know, uh, it's a very, very, if you want, emotional term. It's not, how do you quantify desire? Yes, you can quantify, we know we can, but, you know, it's something that moves you. 
And this is something that I think can be applicable to a luxury item as well as to a painting. Mm -hmm. You work with people's feelings here. You work with also people's aspiration. You work, you, work, you work with people's ambition, you know, to belong to a certain circle, to show off certain, uh, you know, cultural understanding, for instance, of art or uh, connoisseurship of a certain brand. So, you know, it's a very, I think both art and luxury actually are very, very human and humanistic businesses. And so my idea was really to start with, uh, um, with a question that was, what is luxury first? And you mentioned, of course, you are coming uh, as a guest, as a guest speaker, one of the very first guest speakers I usually invite, because we need to start to ask ourselves, what is luxury for me? And then asking, what is luxury for the person close to me? And then widen our horizon and saying, what is luxury for my society, the society I have around? Because then when we talk about marketing business, we know that these markets are made by people. And we are able then to produce a value that is really resonant with those people because we know to read them. So then, of course, the course is luxury business. So we talk about all the infrastructure, we talk about markets, consumer behavior, marketing and branding. But if there is not this approach, uh, my idea or my feeling is that then we become very reactive to the market. And, you know, in business, when you become reactive, you lose. <laughs> you need to anticipate or at least you need to be at pace with what is happening in the market, in the minds of the people. Um, if I if I can give you an example, um, right now, luxury brands are going with uh, pet wear and kind of accessory for pets. Hmm. Now, this comes because, of course, during the pandemic, we know uh, people have been uh, basically uh, buying pets and having pets in their homes for company. And also people have developed a relationship with pets. We know how much related we are with our pets. There was a discussion between cats and dogs, but let's say that especially with dogs, dogs have become an extension of ourselves. For younger people who are delaying, for instance, the idea of family and having kids, dogs are an extension of ourselves. We can spoil them. And this is where luxury brand realized there was an opportunity there. Again, it's not about the dogs. It's about our relationship with, with our pets. I say dogs because, of course, cats are more independent. And then there is a social element in that as well. You don't you don't take your cat, uh, you know, for a walk. You take your dog, and then maybe you take your dog on a purse, and you go, uh, you know, uh, to have coffee with your friends with your dog. There is a social element there, and this is where luxury brands are working on. So this is yeah. this is somehow the connection between society, but also our feelings with that we have towards our pets and the business opportunities. So just to illustrate to the viewers, if I can do this, I'm working from home today. And that <laughs> is my pet bought just before the first lockdown. Con that was coincidentally, I I'd had a border collie, a sheepdog before. She's beautiful. Her name's Drift. She's now two and a half. But the, what she's lying in, what she's lying in is a 
is a is a luxury basket you know the best of the best for our dog uh you know so it's made of it's like um, maybe we could come on to talk about this this is kind of local british this is kind of like english luxury almost um mm -hmm. sheep wool from yorkshire you know where the sheep mm -hmm. are, where we where the sheep are in in england um and um you know it, it, it was a Christmas present to her, you know, pretty expensive. And she, as you can see, she loves it. <laughs> um, but but she's also got a Barbour raincoat with a label on, you know, you can tell it's Barbour. And Barbour, for the listeners, if you do, don't know, is a kind of luxury brand. I, I believe the Chinese are really into Barbour, for example, as kind of British brand, you know, luxury brand. So I don't know, would you call Barbour a luxury brand, Federica? Maybe you not. know, I would say, well, I would say it has been, and it could be, um, you know, for instance, Barber was, when I was in high school, it was a luxury brand, because yeah. in my high school, that was really trendy, it had a very high, you know, high price point, uh, especially for young, for young kids as we were, and yeah. so what it, it was, it used to be definitely a luxury back then in my environment. Because then what happened, it's quite funny, the mechanism. What happened is that um, when the following season came up, there was another, I think, I'm not sure it's a British brand, it's Woolrich. Um, it's another brand. Um, and then these people would change your wardrobe from Barbour to Woolrich. What happened is that those people who actually were able to buy Barbour saving up money or maybe their parents told them look we're gonna buy you the barber but then the barber jacket but then that's it yes and they had to stay with barber yes and so you could see the difference in between those people who actually could afford to change their wardrobe seasonally and people who couldn't so again another idea of the dynamism between you know luxury fashion and trends and how much do they speak to us about us, really? Yeah, in some ways, Barber is a kind of luxury brand because it tends to be quite expensive and the shops tend to be in the kind of luxury areas of, say, London and, and so on. But it's more, it's very English, it's very British thing, it's very practical and it lasts. Mm -hmm. And you wear it, you know, you wear it out when you're walking the dog in the rain in the And it's from the countryside that we brought it into the city which is an interesting, it's a bit yes. like driving a Range Rover that was basically designed for farmers. <laughs> you don't need a four-wheel drive in <laughs> Chelsea. Um, and then everybody, it becomes a luxury fashion because they're very expensive to have. So, you know. Yes, I guess Barbour, um, I think Barbour was able to take the practicality, the waterproof element, Yes, I think, and then make it, of course, what it is, you know, fashionable yes. and then luxury, I guess. Yes, so. yes. I remember when I used to be studying in Italy, doing my research down in the Bay of Naples, and I was there in winter and when no other tour there were no tourists around. I used to get the train to Pompeii from Sorrento, uh, the chicken Vesuviana, and uh, the, the kids would be all go, the teenagers would be going to school. And I noticed then that there was definitely brands that the that they had to have a certain kind of backpack. You know, mm -hmm. I can't I just trying to remember what it was at the time, but that every you know there was there's a it was a bit like nike's today that everybody had to have the same brand and if you didn't you were probably considered poor or whatever um i guess i guess those objects weren't necessarily expensive but it's a, it's another kind of brand that is aimed at like a lower 
a lower economic level if you like mm. but do you do you think something similar is going on there where teenagers all want to wear the right thing even though it's not particularly expensive no and this is why in a way when we talk about luxury of course there there might be objective definitions of of what a luxury object is mm. uh, but i'm really interested and this is why somehow i tend to go also beyond luxury because we said before it's about also desire so for instance the teenager teenagers at school this is a market this is their own they have their own society and what is trendy in that society then becomes desirable right yeah. and so that maybe is more fashion um, yes. than anything else yes. but it's on the other hand it also established some sort of hierarchy yes. and so within that small society um, having certain things qualifies you as hierarchically, let's say, <laughs> um, you know, on the on the very top. Um, so this is why sometimes, you know, I have some, um, you know, some people or other academics uh, telling me, yes, but we, you know, if we were not to have our society where there is an inequality uh, and, uh, you know, let's say primitive villages, okay, let's go back to that luxury wouldn't exist mm. and I always counter argue that actually it would because mm. I said let's say let's go to the Amazonian forest you can identify specifically who the head of the village is mm -hmm. maybe he can use he can just use certain flowers to decorate his body maybe he can use certain beads to for his necklace and all the others are prohibited from having those or maybe sure. there is an economy that justify the possession of those elements so again it's not maybe about luxury but status certainly even if you had a very very simple society you would always have this kind of way for people to distinguish themselves and you know in human beings there is always this desire to be different because we are all different on the other hand there is always the desire to fit in and so this is the mechanism that rule, of course, fashion. And then in luxury, of course, then you play on a higher level, but that's the same mechanism, basically. And so, you know, even when we have, you know, a situation like school kids, uh, there is the same, exactly the same mechanism. Um, and, uh, and, you know, we know well now that the age of luxury consumers, you know, has been actually, um, you know, going towards younger generation, we were talking about, you know, generation of, you know, collectors or consumers is, is going younger. So, mm -hmm. because also they can count on the wallets of their parents and grandparents and so on. So what, what's, what sort of an academic um, back, what, what's, what is the kind of academic bibliography for luxury as an academic, an emerging academic? Would you say it's an emerging academic discipline? We might say so, like, as is art business, you know, what we mean by that is that there isn't, it hasn't been considered a, a worthy uh, object to study until relatively recently. And, and in many ways, I think the Institute is kind of almost leads the world in this, you know, it was the first, um, it was the, it, I, arguably, it was the first sort of like, serious master's degree where we're focusing on art business rather than just art if you like uh, and it's a problem for us because um uh th there isn't there wasn't that there is now there's more but there, there wasn't that much in terms of peer-reviewed academic 
studies mm -hmm. that we could use for our students um is that what what are the de recent developments in what what do academics who study luxury what are they particularly interested in is there a trend over the last say five to ten years that they tend to focus on certain aspects of luxury academics um you're right in saying that luxury is emergent uh because mm -hmm. i find myself sometimes when you prepare classes you have to kind of pick and choose so for instance, in my case, I pick from history. So history uh, books or books talking about consumer behavior in the past, for instance, mm -hmm. when we talk about the history of luxury. Mm -hmm. um, there are spe specific books that have become a little bit, I call them the Bibles in the sense that they are mm -hmm. somehow very specific to luxury. The idea of luxury written by Christopher Berry, and that was 1995, if I'm not mistaken. And that, and that takes an, a sort of philosophical approach to the concept of luxury. Mm -hmm. Then you consider luxury, uh, you know, as I said, in context. So you might read about tulips in, uh, in the Netherlands and the trade mm -hmm. of tulips, and you realize that actually they were luxury or mm -hmm. the salt trade in the past, the Silk Road. So you kind of, you have to distill from that. And that is for the historical part. Uh, in terms of business, um, you know, you uh, luxury stems a little bit from the studies around fashion, because mm -hmm. then you take, of course, the top tier of fashion brands. Um, we have a study from Kafferer, which is the lux luxury strategy. But then there have been a lot, a lot uh, written on branding, marketing, um, most recently, as you can imagine, I think it might be applicable to art, perhaps, a lot on sustainability. Um, sustainability has become, a, you know, again, a very, very important topic for luxury. And so I see it also in the interest of the students uh, when they write or what they are interested in, uh, definitely sustainability. Um, and so it's kind of a discipline that it's evolving with, mm -hmm. I would say, more and more articles or publications written specifically on luxury and saying, we are going to look into that rather than episodically saying, oh, this is a study on Prada. You know, it has become more and more, you know, a box, an academic or a um, intellectual box where you can say, yes, I'm writing and I'm in the luxury studies field. And that's the kind of academic side of what of what you're doing with your students so on the more practical professional practice side um may, maybe you could say something for example about the the um the, the the study visits that you do both in london maybe or do you go outside of london but also some of the kind of foreign visits you do you know what what is the rationale for for those visits in terms of the students then learning from people working in luxury Yes, uh, of course, luxury is a field that changes every single day. Yeah. Um, and so I think that there is there needs to be a balance between, in a way, the theory or the reflection. As you well know, whenever we academics write, it gets published maybe two or three years down the line. So, you know, our is more of a reflection that is very important, though. It's very important to lay the foundation for a long-term understanding of what's going on. At the same time, it's a very fast paced, it's a very disruptive industry at the moment. And so we need to ensure that we bring the students very, very close or even behind the scene, as we like to, to say it at the Institute of what is happening in the industry. 
And so the visits that we organize, uh, we do two field trips. One is in Paris, the other one is in Italy. And mm -hmm. the rationale behind those is actually to make the students aware that luxury is not set and each country somehow, each place have their own way of interpreting luxury, have their own way of producing luxury. For instance, when we went to Paris, there was a stress of every single speaker. And of course we speak with a, you know many people in many positions, in many uh, sectors of the luxury industry. The key word that I really took with me was the sour fare, the know-how, the training, the relevance on the training and the length of the training that people working in the industry have. With Italy, um, we go to Italy and there, there is a different kind of vibe. And the vibe is that of, it's more informal if you want, although we are still speaking of the industry, but luxury industry, but it's more creativity. It's more, let's, do, let's, let's see what we can do with what we have in terms of excellence. So there is a little bit of an adventure there. Um, and so I remember, you know, some students telling me, wow, it's so great to see this kind of variety of interpretation. And the principle there is that, as you know, David, we get students from all over the world. So we might have students from Asia, from China, uh, you know, from Latin America, from Africa. And so my, my wish for them is, is that they can say, well, this is luxury as interpreted in a sort of European environment. Let's try and find our own kind of luxury, our own identity within the luxury industry. That is the scope. And of course, London is another, is another hub for luxury. And so, uh, you know, just going, um, just visiting and entering the store and what I like is having people telling the, the stories. Um, this is very important. My question usually, you know, when, you, when there is the chance, I always ask them, how did you start it? Mm -hmm. because, because it's important for the student to see the bridge between themselves as learners, but also as future professionals and what could be. Mm. Yeah, so it's a very important part of our, our program, yes. Yeah, and um, presumably the areas of London you would be focusing on, would they tend to be Mayfair, St. James, the, 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 the kind of obvious ones? Or or are there, are, you know, maybe you could say something about, you were talking about Italians being more creative and there being a vibe of, create, let's see what we can do. Is there such a thing as emerging luxury markets, you know, new disruptive brands sort of appearing on the scene? And how do they... How do they get in on something that is so associated with tradition? You know, how do, how would how would a new handbag designer, for example, a uh, new kid on the block, as it were, of luxury goods, um, you know, how would they challenge the the traditional Gucci's and Vuittons of the world? There, okay, have you got an example of that? Um, okay, for instance, one independent brand that has coming up that's come up and it's not from an emerging market though um is jacquemus with his uh bags yes and jacquemus um actually it's a sort of case study in mm -hmm. itself because he did it basically through social media 
mm. and through uh, an iconic, uh, an iconic bag, you know, the very small little bag that yeah. then became kind of viral. And yes. so this is one example. And what he, you know, um, he says that Anna Wintour told him so when he was uh, at the beginning. <laughs> Just dropping uh, the name, yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what would you like? I mean, which brand would you like to work for? And he said, no, I want to work for myself. I want to have my own brand. And it's amazing. And the way I think he got exactly in the in the understanding that uh, consumers now need ex- visual stimulation and experiences. And mm-hmm. this is what he does brilliantly, you know, for social media mm-hmm. mainly. So this is one way. And this tells me that potentially, for instance, I'm looking at Africa right now because it's mm-hmm. such a such an interesting country because also culturally speaking it has become very appealing to the western world yep and somehow i link the successfulness of these you can be an independent brand if you have a very smart way of talking to people uh, through your social media channels through the way also you create sustainability we said is very important also be very transparent these can help actually this can facilitate your resonance with uh, a certain market i'm looking at africa right now with china it's quite interesting because i think that country branding still matters quite a lot for us and so the reputation of the countries around the world especially in these days and so i can see i mean there are chinese luxury brands there but my point is, if you want to have a global market, this brand should be appealing to the Western world as well, mm-hmm. in a way. And I think that still the reputations of the countries um, play a part in that. So again, we go back to the idea that it's not just an economic or a strategic decision. It also, it also relates to how we perceive things. But definitely, luxury is global. And, you know, historically, of course, all sorts of reasons, but historically, the luxury industry was born in the Western world. But I I can see now and I see now that emerging countries or emerging brands um, from emerging markets can also have their own um, their own space in the industry. Yes. Yeah. You're, you're, what you were saying about Africa, your interest in Africa at the moment, it one of the earlier podcasts was a, an interview with an, a, 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 an African-born Ghanaian artist who now works in London, Kojo Marfo. And um, he, uh, when they when they had his first solo show down in in, um, in Mayfair at J.D. Mallet, um, it was interesting the way they did that because they involved uh, a, a, a luxury uh, design group um, to create silk scarves and pocket handkerchiefs, silk pocket handkerchiefs, you know, silk we associate as a material with luxury, obviously, mm-hmm. um, of his of a couple of his paintings, and they and they used Instagram to actually model, you know, mm-hmm. they were getting models in to actually show how beautiful that. But the, but these were the paintings, but they've been worn by people, mm-hmm. which which struck me as a very very interesting move away, and it's happened before, obviously, but it tends in the past, in my experience, to have happened with old masters, like Botticelli is a very good mm-hmm. example of using the, um, the, not the prima, well, the primavera sometimes, but usually the Venus rising from the waves. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. On Dolce Gabbana used it, for example, mm-hmm. famously. 
Um, mm -hmm. I think Paul Rocher used it. So, so, but it's very interesting suddenly seeing the launch of a of a of a, a, a contemporary artist no one had really heard of before uh, mm -hmm. onto the London scene. <laughs> so suddenly his images were on matches in near Oxford Circus as digital mm -hmm. images in the in the shopping street. You know, it's, I know it's not a luxury shopping street as such, really, but um, but also people were wearing his these silk garments. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, and this speaks actually on on how our, you know, um, our markets have also changed, yeah. uh, where you have, you know, the, it's it's about the communication, really. It's about surprising people, mm. uh, the wow effect, as, as we call it, right? To do something that, yes, it has been done before, mm. but it's a great way to launch, in a way, to think outside the box and to go beyond the dimension of the products. It can be you know, a work of art, but it can also be addressed. Why don't we do something different? Yes. And this is a communication. Um, it, it's about, I think it, it, we were, there is a lot, uh, you know, said about storytelling. I think that the telling stories is what we need. Yeah. We go back maybe to Homeros and the Iliad, mm. uh, you know, when we were saying, well, you know, nice stories. People need to hear nice stories. And so people need or want to hear who is behind the brand I'm buying, what is behind the object I'm buying. Because, you know, even a silk handkerchief, yeah, silk is luxury, okay. And you can talk about the manufacturer, that's fine. But what about, oh, but, you know, the design was made by such and such artists. You know, yes. the, the artist is coming, has this interesting background. Yeah. It's a sort of, not only it's a topic of conversation with people, but it's also something that somehow you feel that you have acquired a piece of that story, of that person, of that individual life. Um, and this is behind what's happening today uh, that we we say, well, it's marketing, it's branding, whatever, but no, it's something deeper. If you do mm. it correctly, if you do it with purpose, it's something deeper than that. Yeah, and as you say, it's always been there in in the history of luxury goods and art that that in the literature we read, people, you know, Vasari in his life of the great artists. It's what people. The reason people read those is is for the wonderful anecdotes, the stories of the artists' lives, and and you you buy a little bit of that when you actually purchase one of their works. And I think that's also, as you say, that's very true of the luxury industry. With the, I, I'm sure that when you go in and 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 get the the uh the owners um you know to talk about their brands I, I bet they tell a lot of stories about the 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 craftsmanship behind the making of the objects the care that goes into the production of them but also the stories behind using a certain design um and, and so on yeah that so you are buying into that and and then that means the consumer of course has a story to tell their friends it's not just oh I've got a Gucci handbag it's you know this is the edition this is this edition and they only made five of them and you know someone else who has one and you know the story behind it it becomes part of the consumption and then the continuing marketing of that object through the consumer exactly exactly that's why you know they i mean there are psychological studies saying that you know technically as you said everybody could buy a, a gucci handbag if they have money as long as they have money yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's okay right whereas of course that's the difference in the art world it it can i my students are often surprised when i say if you want to buy a work by a new artist that Gago, larry gagosian is launching 
just because you've got money doesn't mean you can buy it. He will choose the people who buy it because it's important to him and his brand that certain collectors, famous collectors have it. And therefore, that's where people buy at auction because no one can stop them buying at auction. It's the highest bidder gets the works. And we saw the Damien mm -hmm. Hurst famous sale where he was selling his primary works at auction for the first time. And his argument was, I'm fed up with my dealer, with my my agents selecting people. People should be allowed to buy my work if they if they have money to buy it. So, so that brings us kind of full circle to that world of business and money and exchange and, you know, why people buy luxury. So Federica, I'd like to thank you very much uh, on behalf of the listeners as well to to be in the guest today and giving up your time today. And, um, uh, you know, maybe in a, maybe in a year or two's time uh, down the river, as it were, we could we could we you could be a guest again and talk about uh, how luxury has developed over that next two year period. But I, I think I know I know your way of teaching and I know that you're you said it at the start of the podcast that um, you it's not just about historical knowledge. It's about knowing what's seeing over the horizon, trying to get your students to look beyond the horizon and seeing what's coming up in the future. So we look forward to maybe another podcast in the future where we hear all about that. So thank you very much, Federica. Thank you, David, for having me. Thank you very much.